0: So, we weren't quite sure exactly what we wanted to do. I didn't know what to do with the Good Friday service. And to be honest, I felt utterly intimidated, not sufficient, and I asked God to help me. And I want to show you what He showed me. Can we do that as long as we're here? All right then today we're gonna be in Isaiah 53. If you wanna look in your Bible and read along with. And we have Bibles in the back for those who don't have them. And if you want, you can have two at a time if you like. This is conspicuous consumption. want to say hi to everybody on the live stream. And we know that some of you are real sick, and we just want to say we love you, and we're sorry you couldn't make it, but we're glad you're with us. Isaiah 53, why don't we pray? Ask God to bless our time. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that we can be together and you're with each person here in the room and wherever we're streaming, you're there. We praise you and thank you that your presence fills the heavens and the earth. There's no place where we can go where you're not, but here you are with us We praise you and thank you for that. We thank you for sending Jesus. We pray that you would take our time and bless it and glorify Jesus. Bless our time of worship. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So, I'm reading in the Gospels and I'm, I'm listening and I'm saying, okay, Lord, what do you want to say? What can I say about Good Friday? And I just had this funny feeling of being intimidated that I can't do it justice, I can't speak adequately and make it mean what it's supposed to mean. There's a really funny feeling of helplessness. And I'm reading along in the Gospels, and I think, well, you know, this is not giving the significance of what's going on. It's recording what's going on. You know, Jesus is betrayed, he's arrested. He's interrogated, he's condemned, beaten, crucified buried, and yet the gospels give a peek of the significance, but I found myself going, wow, you know, if if you were just one of the people looking at this, you would say, poor guy. You know, he's having a tough day. You wouldn't see like a tag floating in space with an arrow pointing, salvation. Or here's another tag saying Messiah. Or one of the thieves, you know, a tag saying this one is going to make it. So if you were looking at it, you wouldn't know what is going on. It wouldn't be immediately apparent. Oh my gosh, salvation. Here I thought I was just going up for Passover and I'm looking at the whole thing in front of my eyes. So, that's why we're in Isaiah 53, because here you get what is going on and the significance. What does it mean? And Isaiah 53 even points out that it wouldn't be anything to look at outwardly. You have to know the significance, and Isaiah 53 shows that. And it shows that God is pleased with everything that the Messiah is going to do, and that God would honor and vindicate the Messiah for carrying out His will and pleasing Him fully. So, this is what I'm looking at. Good Friday is not very impressive, but God is pleased to save sinners. So this is what it says in Isaiah 53. It says, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He's despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. So, God is aware that this whole act of salvation, and Jesus in particular, doesn't look like anything outwardly. Here Isaiah, in the first verse, calls him the arm of the Lord. And that refers to the power of God. Think about the power of God that he says, let there be light, and there's light. The arm of the Lord brings light, that takes power. And all that was created by God was made by his arm, the arm of the Lord, power. Don't you wish you could have seen creation? Three seconds beforehand, there's nothing, and all of a sudden, pow, light, and you go, ow, my eyes hurt. And you're going, this is amazing. So here's the arm of the Lord being revealed. And if you didn't know what was going on, you would miss it entirely. It's not impressive. That is, there's no divine appearance about him so that people go, of course, this guy's the Messiah. He glows in the dark. That's how you can tell it's him, right? He's not handsome. I mean, startlingly, scarily handsome. See, you go, wow. And he's not rippling with muscles as he moves with feline grace. And you go, wow. I would believe this guy is the Messiah. Look at him. He's got Messiah written all over him. So when Judas Iscariot is betraying Jesus, he gives him a signal. He doesn't say, look for the guy who's got unnaturally blue eyes and he never blinks. He says, okay, look, I'm going to say hi to him. I'm going to go up there and kiss him. That's the guy. Go get him. Leave the others. So you wouldn't be able to pick Jesus out in a crowd. Now he knows our sorrows and our griefs. That's what it says. But he's not impressive in stature or physical appearance. You wouldn't look at him and say, wow, he's God. He's got to be God. And in fact, he's like the guy that you don't look at. You know, when you're walking down the street and you see a guy sitting there with a cardboard sign, and all of a sudden you're looking over here. I didn't see anything. You turn your eyes away from him because you don't want to look at him because you would acknowledge him. He's a poor guy that's like, okay, I'm not here, I'm moving on. This is the kind of guy that Isaiah is talking about. You think, this guy needs a handout himself. He does not look like the savior of the world. I'm just gonna deflect and shun and keep moving. Now what's happening that is not visible is that this person, Jesus, is taking our sins upon himself. Now, you can't see that. You can't say, wow, look at my sins being transferred to him. Can't see it. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Everybody looking at Jesus on the cross says, poor guy, I guess he's getting what he deserves. He's crucified between two vile men, they were murderers, they were insurrectionists, they were worthless. And one of them actually ends up saying, we're getting what we deserve. We deserve to die in this disgusting way. And you'd think the guy in the middle is one of them. But That's what we can't see, is this, all of our sins are being transferred to him right now. And Isaiah is full of descriptive words, transgressions, iniquities, chastisement, and it's summed up in this, we have turned everyone to his own way. We've all gone our own way. God has his way. All the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth. He's gracious and merciful, slow to anger. Those are his ways. He delights in unchanging love. But we're not going his way. We're going our way. And that's not necessarily your way. I'm going my way. You have your truth, I have my truth, okay? And fine, stay out of my face, I'm just doing my own thing. And what does that result in? It results in suffering and mistreating one another. It results in pushing God away and it results in the kind of world that we live in right now. You can watch it become more brutal, less kind. You know, I'm reading more news articles that have words that have mostly asterisks in them, and I have to supply the missing letters They're all curse words. And I know what they all are. I would rather not verbalize them to myself, but it's showing up in the news. It's showing up in social media. It's just corrupt. And you know, that only expresses what's in the heart. Out of the fullness of the heart, the man speaks. So, brutality, Unfaithfulness, stealing, lying, it's all over the place. You watch people lie, and you know they're lying, and they know they're lying, and on it goes. And I guess you could call it inhumanity. That's what we're practicing, us humans. What do you do? Well, I practice inhumanity. That's who I am. And so sin has its own built-in punishment. Notice it's griefs and sorrows there in verse four. That is all that rebellion against God has ever done for us, ever. Nobody has walked away from sin saying, boy, that was fabulous. Sin corrupts, twists, perverts. It makes a person filthy and it destroys. Now that's what we're getting from this. We get our griefs, our sorrows. The more we try to go our own way, the more we hurt ourselves. The more futile it is. And so, we're sitting against God. We're saying, I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. I don't want anybody telling me to, what to do. Now the extreme position there is being a sociopath. You know what a sociopath is? That is somebody that nobody can tell what to do and they have to put him in prison. That's the only safe place for them and everybody else because they're gonna do what they wanna do. well. What's happening, though, is that Jesus didn't commit anything like that. Here's somebody who's completely different on the planet. He's not going his own way. He's going the Father's way. Loving kindness and truth. What did he do? He healed people. He taught the truth. He forgave sinners, people that should have died. He says, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. What kind of man is this that forgives sins? But he was letting people go. Instead of what people think God's gonna do is to hold still till I smite you. He doesn't do that. He's merciful. So you have all these people who are usually the scum of the earth and they love being with Jesus. Tax collectors, sinners. And they're listening to him because they understand. He loves them. And they know, nobody should love me that this guy does and yet what is he what is he getting for all this well rejected of men despised but smitten by god smitten by god to the point where he says on the cross my god my god why have you forsaken me He can survive being rejected by men, but boy, when God rejects you, that is the absolute worst. All those sins that Jesus never committed, God placed them upon him. While he's on the cross, he is sin. He made him who knew no sin to be sin. As if he had fought it all up and then went out and did it all. That's how God is treating him. And these words are hard, stricken, smitten, pierced, wounded, afflicted, bruised, chastisement, And so God has put all of our sins upon him. Now, in verse 7, it says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. So here's Jesus not resisting. And you'll remember how the Jewish leaders were interrogating him and he was saying nothing. They tried to find evidence against him to put him to death and nobody could agree. And that's very frustrating when you're trying to get a person and you can't get them. Even a, a fake trial, they couldn't even do that to him. And finally, the, uh, the chief priest just says, what are they saying? Hoping to get Jesus to incriminate himself. And Jesus won't say anything. And then he says, I charge you by the living God. Tell us whether you're the Messiah. And he says, I am. And he really steps in it. (laughs) Because that seals his fate. High priest rips his garment, says, what more do we need to hear? You've heard this blasphemy. So Jesus walked straight into it, knowing what it would cost him to say that. And they bring him to Pilate. Pilate examines him, says there's nothing wrong with this guy. And three times, Pilate says, look, he hasn't done anything worthy of death. Sends him to Herod. Herod sends him back. And in the end, to avoid a riot, he says, okay, we'll kill him. Now, can you imagine Jesus never at any time defends himself, says, well, that's not true, ever. He just sits there or stands there while they accuse him of horrendous crimes, capital crimes worthy of death. And, and Pilate is completely amazed that he's not desperate, begging for mercy, saying it's all a mistake, I can show you that I wasn't there, nothing. And see, this was necessary. It was necessary that Jesus just walk into this and not defend himself. Because The only person who could save us is a sinless person who had never committed any sin. Imagine that for 33 years, Jesus has lived on the planet without sin. Never once thought anything wrong, about God or anybody. I can think all sorts of things rotten about people at the drop of a hat. I might not say them because I'm a pastor. (laughs) And I'll end up in the newspapers. Foul-mouthed pastor gets caught. But Jesus has all these horrendous things happen to him. He doesn't think anything wrong towards them, he doesn't think anything wrong towards God. Because that's even more to the point. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. He's not saying, thanks a lot, this is what I get for living for you, huh? just yields to that like a lamb. And you know the thing about lambs is that what—that's that's what they're made for. That in Psalm 44, the psalmist says, we are considered as sheep for the slaughter. Lambs don't fight back. They have no natural defenses. And, of course, that's what predators enjoy. That's what they're there for, says the predator. This is great, I don't even have to fight, you're dead. Meal. But that's the kind of person Jesus is, innocent and harmless. And so, because he is harmless, Innocent, sinless, he can be that sacrifice for sinful, wretched, lost people. And again, this does not look like salvation, does it? It just looks like poor guy. Nobody's thinking, whoa, he's blameless. He's without sin. It just doesn't look like anything. Nobody noticed. So, we have the vindication of the Messiah in verse nine and following. It says, and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant This is the vindication of God for his righteous servant showing that he is without blame and that he's fully pleasing to God. Showing that there is no cause at all why he should be put to death. He's exalting him because he has fully accomplished all of his will. And the first thing that God does to vindicate his servant is he has him buried honorably. Now he's with two vile, worthless men in his death, one on either side. And yet Jesus is not among them. And you know that it says here He had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. And you know, this was witnessed even by one of those vile, wicked men. He could tell the truth, the difference. And the other one is making fun of him while he's dying. That's what you do when you're dying this disgusting death. You're cursing everybody who looks at you. You're cursing God. You're on your way out. You might as well just say, "Mm," and just let everybody have it. But when Jesus was crucified, he said, it says, he began to say, forgive them, Father, for they don't know what they're doing. Now, nobody had ever heard that at any time in their lives coming from a person who's being crucified. Can you imagine? Your, Your whole body is like exploding with pain. Ever seen like a a firework sparkler go off? And it's just all these sparkles. Well, imagine that you're the sparkler and all those sparkles are the pain, little squiggles and crosshatches coming out of your body. That's what it feels like. And yet Jesus is praying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So at a certain point, the other criminal just says, you know, we're getting what we deserve, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. And he says to him, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, assuredly I say to you, tonight you will dine with me in paradise. Can he do that? Is he saying the truth? Says here, there was no deceit in his mouth. That's because there's no deceit in his heart. Out of the fullness of the heart, The man speaks and he says, truly I say to you, tonight you will be with me in paradise. Tonight. No deceit in his mouth. It's just amazing that Jesus can save somebody about to die a death that he deserves and right there he saves them. And you know, he had to trust Jesus, because Jesus died first. And then the soldiers went around and broke their legs. And then he had to say, was he saying the truth? And he said, yes. He spoke the truth. There was no deceit in his mouth. And so, When Jesus is dead, God vindicates him by having him buried in a rich man's grave, in honor. Not a common grave, just throw the body in and cover it over. No, he is buried with honor. In fact, Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, goes to Pilate and asks respectfully for the body of Jesus. Pilate confirms with the centurion that Jesus was dead, officially confirmed, and says, You may have the body. And so he and Nicodemus, the Pharisee, wrapped the body of Jesus in over a hundred pounds of spices, frankincense, myrrh. It's an honorable burial. That's the kind of burial you give to a valued beloved, respected, honorable person. But then there's another vindication in these scriptures, and that is that the Messiah, this one who was smitten of God, rejected of men, is going to prolong his days He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. He says, I'll divide him a portion with the great. How will he get his portion if he's dead? How shall he divide the spoil with the strong if you pour out your soul to death? But God vindicates the Messiah by raising him from the dead. He was delivered over for our transgressions, says Paul. But he was raised for our justification. Because it says here, by his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many and the resurrection is actually the proof that God accepted that sacrifice of Jesus and is pleased with it. God is pleased with that sacrifice. It's called a propitiation, and there's no other word for it. You have to learn this word. You can't simplify it or call it something else because this is so important, a propitiation is some kind of an offering that restores relationship with an offended party to the point where there's no more offense and there's a full, open, trusting, loving relationship established. Now, people look at that and say, well, that sounds like God is an angry God who needs to be appeased. And you'll think of pagan religion where there's a God and he's angry, so quick, get a cow, kill it, put it up on a rock and burn it, and maybe he'll be you know, appeased and not hurt us. Maybe the volcano will stop erupting Maybe our crops will survive this year. Please, don't be angry at us. And they sort of put that on God and say, yeah, God, angry God. But this propitiation is different. Because... First of all, God is righteously angry. There's a reason why there is wrath against sin. It destroys everything that God made to be good. He looked at everything on the seventh day, or the sixth day, and said, behold, it is all very good. And what happens? Sin comes in and ruins everything. And that's why everything falls to dust That's why we die. And so, yes, God is righteously angry with sin. But He doesn't want to destroy sinners, interestingly enough. He wants to save them. So, He punishes a substitute in our place, carries out the sentence and his wrath is completely exhausted on this substitute to the point where God has delivered all of his wrath against everything that destroyed all his good creation. And because all of his wrath is poured out, that means there can be forgiveness. There can be reconciliation, restored relationship. Now you know what's happened when somebody really messes you over. You go, okay, I forgive you, but I don't know if I can trust you. See? And this is what we deal with with people can I trust you? Or will you take advantage of me again? Will you wrong me again? Will you betray me? But with this sacrifice, it's so pleasing to God that God doesn't even worry about that. It's a full, free relationship. It is, come here, let me love you. Let me love you. Let me pour out grace upon you. Let me do exceedingly abundantly beyond all you can ask or think. Let me do that for you. That's how full this reconciliation is. So, God is so pleased with this that he raises Jesus from the dead and that is the proof that there is forgiveness. And, Glory to come, and a relationship with God. where you never have to worry. Gee, does God love me? I mean, I just sinned. I would be. Ang- I am angry with myself. I loathe myself. But what about God? Nope, He loves you. So declared to be the Son of God, with power by the resurrection of the dead. That's how the Apostle Paul puts it. And that resurrection is the proof that we have a real salvation, a real forgiveness. So, this is the Father's pleasure. And he says, I'll divide him a portion with the great and he'll divide the spoil with the strong. Now this resurrection, it sets Jesus apart from anybody who's ever lived. Nobody else has ever come back from the dead. And that's why Jesus is the name above all names. He's the one that we have to listen to there is salvation in no other name. Okay, that's the meaning of Good Friday. What do you do with this? And the answer is in Isaiah 55. If you want to turn there, it says, ho, oh, everyone who thirsts, comes to the, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come by and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear and your soul shall live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. Indeed, I have given him as a witness to the people, a leader and a commander for the people. So what you do with this is, you receive it. And it's like eating, only it's better than food because You can eat as much as you want, still not be satisfied. You ever done that? You kind of like eat too much. And then you're going, "Mm, I wish I hadn't done that. Yeah, but you're full, right? Yeah, but I'm still not satisfied. Weird how that works. And what God is saying here is you cannot be satisfied with your mouth or anything on this planet, you're satisfied by your ear. It's what you listen to, it's what you hear, it's what you incline to. That will satisfy you. Just like food, but better because you'll be satisfied. I mean, ultimately, that's why we go our own way. What's gonna satisfy you? What's gonna satisfy me? Well, we all have our ways, but there's only one way that will satisfy. Listen. And God says, I'll make an everlasting covenant with you. That's always about relationship. And he says, the sure mercies of David, that word in Hebrew is chesed, And it's talking about the loving kindness of God in a covenant relationship. And it's plural, which means there's more than one. One would be great, (laughs) but these are multiple. Multiple loving kindnesses of God because of covenant. And that's forgiveness of sins, That's a loving kindness. Fellowship with God, being filled with the Holy Spirit, glorification to come in the future. Eternal life with God forever. And David is the example. A guy that loved God but sinned against him. Sins that should have put him to death according to the law of Moses. And yet Nathan the prophet says, you shall not die. God has taken away your sin. You have an everlasting covenant with him, ordered in all things and secure. And David says, that is all my hope. Imagine that you can hear and receive and be satisfied. So that's Good Friday